Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon is off today. For the next two hours, I'll explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Sputnik International reports Moscow releases first results of referendum voting at Russian polling stations. Moscow yesterday released the first results of the referendums on the accession of the Luhansk People's Republic, the Donetsk People's Republic, as well as Russia-controlled Kherson and Zaporozhye regions in the country, among those voting on the Russian territory. For insight into this, let's turn to my first guest. He's a Sputnik News analyst, and he joins us from Moscow, Wyatt Reed. As always, Wyatt, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So with 14% of the protocols processed, ninety, almost 98% of the voters in Russia have supported the accession of the DPR to the country. Almost 98% of people have supported the entry of the uh, Luhansk People's Republic. 13% of the protocols processed, on and on. It seems overwhelming at this point in time. Let me ask you this first question, Wyatt. Uh, we hear all the time that Russia is authoritarian and 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 Vladimir Putin is a is a is a demon and a and a and a dictator. But this seems to be a democratic process. Is this, in fact, democracy in action? Well, I'd certainly characterize it as far more democratic than <laughs> many of the elections we have in in uh, the U.S. and Western Europe. I can't imagine, for example, the United States offering uh, a chance at self-determination to the U.S. colony of Puerto Rico, for example. I think that's a pretty far-fetched idea. Uh, to me, this is real self-determination as far as I can tell. And that's certainly the take that I've heard again and again and again from people coming out to these polls. And, uh, they, I mean, they, the reasons they're coming out, um, you know, if, if it's really a sham election, nobody seems to have told them. Uh, but, you know, the reasons that they're coming out for this, as, as they've relayed to me, is basically a desire for some form of stability in their life, for a chance to have access to uh, their basic to, to getting their basic needs met and to have access to energy um, and uh, jobs, schools, all of these uh, incredibly important social services. Um, and they're also doing it, uh, some of them, because uh, they view the Kiev regime as uh, effectively wanting to kill them. And uh, this is certainly something that we have heard from many Ukrainian media personalities and even government officials that these people in these areas are effectively traitors. They need to be liquidated. We've even heard language about surplus populations, uh, very fascist rhetoric. Um, so it certainly doesn't surprise me that hearing that, that these people would want to come out in the numbers that we've seen them and vote uh, for this referendum the way that they have so far. You know, one of the other things that's been, as you know, reported here in Western media 
is that there's been an awful lot of unrest in Russia, that uh, President Putin has been under a tremendous amount of pressure as it results to the military intervention in Ukraine. What I have come to understand is the pressure that President Putin has been under has been from those in the country that want him to escalate the situation, get the thing over with, stop this surgical strategic approach and just go ahead and handle this business and move on to something else. It's not as Western media wants to portray it as unrest in the country because people are displeased with the action. People are just frustrated that he's being as reserved and strategic as he has been. Is that a fair assessment? That's certainly what I've been picking up. Uh, I mean, I spoke with, uh, you know, and I think really that's, that's what's happening now, I should add. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be the case with the call-up of the 300,000 reservists uh, that we've been hearing about. I spoke today with an official at the embassy of the Donetsk People's Republic here in Moscow, and he confirmed that the successful vote uh, in the referendum means that Russia is likely to elevate this special military operation to an anti-terrorist operation, um, and that, uh, you know, he warned that if the Kiev regime uh, continues its attacks on those regions following their formal uh, inclusion within the Russian Federation, that it's possible that Kiev would be labeled a terrorist state. And so, you know, this uh, certainly seems to be uh, a shift in terms of the rhetoric, a shift in terms of uh, the uh, lengths to which the Russian Federation forces are going to be willing to go to protect the residents of this region. It's also being reported here that every airport, every mode of transportation is being taken over by males leaving the country who don't want to be conscripted into the service, flights uh, just out of the country that it's, you know, the way they paint it here by six o'clock tomorrow afternoon, there won't be a, a male walking the streets of of Moscow under the age of 40. Uh, can you can you speak to to and, 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 and let me also just add what's interesting is that whole narrative is not put into a context in the United States as what happened with the resistance to the Vietnam War and people going to Canada and people going to other other places. So can you speak to that? Absolutely. Well, that's a great point. And I uh, was I heard uh, uh, another friend of the show, Mark Sloboda, um, his analysis earlier uh, on another program on Radio Sputnik, uh, Political Misfit, he uh, made the case that uh, so far, uh, according to his calculations, it's probably in the neighborhood of maybe 100, uh, 150,000 uh, people in total um, that could have uh, potentially sought to flee the country, um, maybe attempting to, uh, you know, attempting to avoid having to be called up for service. For reference, though, the the population of Russia is closer to 150 million, right? (laughs) So we're talking maybe about 0.1%, right, of the Mm -hmm. population Mm -hmm. thereabouts. And, um, you know, this is the 
population that has both the political inclination and the resources to uh, to go ahead and, and flee. Um, certainly, there's uh, uh, elevated ticket prices somewhat, but uh, I would I would hesitate to characterize this as any kind of wave of people. Um, you know, it's it's really. Uh, I, I made the point earlier on too that. People talk about, oh, all the flights coming out of Moscow are full. Well, I flew to Moscow after this partial uh, mobilization was announced, and my flight to Moscow was also, right? So Mm. uh, this sense that, (laughs) you know, this is is, people are only leaving Moscow. No, it's not true. Uh, Life is continuing more or less as normal. Uh, I have not seen any of the male workers you know, <laughs> normal working guys, uh, you know, throwing all their clothes in a bag and, and hopping off to the border. Uh, I re- definitely think this is a case of a story that's being exaggerated for the political benefit of uh, the anti-Russian forces. I would also think, and I think I got this from Mark Sloboda, that there's an ethnic element to this with the fact that you've got, you have uh, people in Moscow and in other cities in Russia that are related to people in Donbass, in Donetsk, in, in all over Ukraine. And so there are people that are saying, you know, I, I don't want to go to war or I don't want to fight against my cousin, my uncle, my, my whoever. So there are family elements to this as well. Well, that's certainly true. Um, people uh, have relatives on both sides of the border. Um, and, you know, uh, everyone who, who relays to me, you know, why they're coming out to vote, everyone has somebody in their family who's been affected, who's been killed, who's been uh, stuck in their basements. You know, I spoke uh, recently with a elderly woman who, who and her daughter, and her daughter said that she spent the last Two weeks uh, desperately searching for her, um, or that she had to spend two weeks desperately searching for her, and her mother had been trapped in a basement for two months due to uh, hostilities that were initiated by the Kiev regime. So uh, it's, you know, she had tears in her eyes and she broke down crying and, and had to end the interview. Um, and that's not the first, first time that's happened. That's not the only time that's happened. Uh, met many people who really break down in tears, crying when describing the situation. They're just overwhelmed with emotions. Um, and generally, you know, that that's why so many people came out to vote for this referendum, uh, that uh, the sense that this is kind of a, a brotherly conflict, that um, we are one people, uh, but that this faction, this anti-Russian faction that uh, was put in power by the United States in 2014, um, that that uh, they prevent that from becoming a reality or even a possibility. There's a piece in the Washington Post, the right wing turn against Ukraine may be around the corner. In a virtual address to the U.N. General Assembly, Zelensky talked about endgame. But as we look at elections in Italy, as we look at elections in Sweden, there seems to be a rightward shift on the geopolitical landscape. And a lot of, if not the leaders that are being elected, the representatives of the parties or factions that they're going to have to form coalitions with are actually more pro-Russian than they are pro-Ukrainian. Yeah, 
Well, uh, you know, I, I, I saw this article. I, I kind of take issue with, um, for example, there, there's some sense here that uh, this new president of uh, Italy, sorry, the new uh, prime minister, uh, Georgia Maloney, is uh, somehow an anti-Russia figure. She seemed, or an anti-Ukraine figure, but uh, I mean, frankly, she has said some extremely anti-Russia things. She describes herself as, you know, pro-NATO, and uh, you know, so to me, there may be an element of that that's a bit exaggerated. But mm-hmm. uh, obviously, there are uh, a number of parties that are that are coming to to power outside of you know, where, where it's not just Italy, right? And there is definitely uh, a link between what uh, many of these parties are saying. There are the, the roots of the problem for working people. Um, it's not hard to imagine that uh, saying what's true would resonate with people, that explaining to them that, you know, you can't have, you can't have heat this winter because we need to give it to uh, the Ukrainians instead. That, um, you know, certainly is a powerful political message. And it's doesn't surprise me that it's resonating with more and more people. We have just about a minute and a half. U.S. Congress negotiators set nearly $12 billion in new Ukraine aid. Is that being reported there? How is that being received? And uh, not to mention, they can find $12 billion to send to Ukraine, but you can't get clean drinking water in Flint, Michigan, or in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Absolutely. Well. I uh, I think this is kind of just an, another drop in the bucket at this point from the Russian perspective. Uh, they certainly are beginning to understand, um, you know, more so than anyone else in the world, that this is a proxy war that NATO is waging against them. Uh, they are using all of our money to do it. They're using all the blood of the Ukrainians, uh, really just so that some financial speculators in London and New York and politicians in Washington and Brussels can find a way to uh, balkanize Russia, to divide it up into little tiny pieces and to take all of its natural resources from it, all of its gas, and make a a boatload of money selling all the guns in the meantime. Wyatt Reed, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your analysis, and I look forward to having you back. Thanks, Carmen. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Democratic Party, now the leading party of war. Last May, a remarkable column by Stephen Kinzer appeared in the Boston Globe. It was headlined, Republicans return to their roots as the anti-war party. More significantly, the subheading ran, since the Vietnam era, Americans have come to expect anti-war rhetoric from liberal Democrats. For insight, let's turn to my next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet coup and America's undeclared war. Dan Lazar, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
So Kinzer's piece begins with Americans now engulfed in passion for Ukraine. It wasn't surprising that President Biden proposed sending $33 billion worth of weaponry and other aid to the Ukrainian beleaguered military. Now was it, nor was it surprising that Congress raised the number to $40 billion or that both the Senate and House voted overwhelmingly in favor. Hidden within that lopsided vote, though, was a shocker. Every single no vote, 11 in the Senate and 57 in the House, came from a Republican, Dan Lazar. Yeah, well, it's, it's really something. I mean, it, it goes back to, I guess, the Obama administration. I mean, uh, Obama himself was a, was a peacenik of sorts. He, uh, he had spoken out vehemently against the, uh, the coming Iraqi invasion uh, in 2002, although he's, he was careful to stress his approval of the uh, invasion of, of Afghanistan in the same speech. Um, but nonetheless, he was seen as a, as a, as a peacenik, a pro-peace candidate. Um, but, you know, but when, he, when he became president, his first act was to, uh, was to appoint Hillary Clinton as uh, Secretary of State. And Clinton um, uh, essentially, you know, began steering the, the administration and the party in general uh, in a more bellicose direction in, uh, you know, in support of the party's uh, neocon, neoconservative wing. Um, and since then, since 2011, we've seen the results. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, aggressive UN, uh, U.S. interventions in places like uh, like uh, Libya, Syria, and uh, and and Yemen. Uh, a more bellicose policy in general. Um, uh, uh, All-out support for the uh, for the 2014 coup d'état in uh, Kiev, which was led by far-right forces, and which you know, eight years later, uh, resulted in the uh, in the Russian invasion, um, and so and meanwhile, at the same time, uh, the the isolationist wing of the Republican Party was on the rise, uh, thanks to Donald Trump. So we've seen a a very strange switch, you know, where the Democrats, uh, who had long been regarded as a party of peace, um, began steadily moving steadily in a more more warlike direction. And the Republicans, who are generally seen as the hawkish party, have been uh, moving uh, equally strongly in an isolationist and anti-war uh, uh, position. Now, it's complicated because, you know, because the, uh, the, the Republicans also, you know, have been banging the drum against China uh, equally as fiercely, if not more so, than the Democrats uh, but still, I think what we're seeing is kind of a remarkable about face. And in this piece, strikingly, not only did the quote unquote conservative Democrats vote for the 40 billion that included more weapons of death and destruction for Joe Biden's cruel proxy war against Russia to the last Ukrainian. All the progressives did so as well. We're talking about AOC, the squad, Bernie Sanders, Roe Kahana, Barbara Lee, of all people, uh, voted for this money. How much of this do you think, if we can even parse this out, had to do with the fact that it's an it's an anti-Russia contingent along with a pro-war contingent? Yeah, I mean, like, well, since the uh, since since 2015, uh, when, you know, when, tr when when Trump first declared for the presidency, 
Um, um, the Democrats have been, have been banging the anti-Russia uh, drum louder and louder, um, and it's become positively obsessive. Uh, I mean, I mean, supposedly, you know, Putin, you know, locked away in his in his uh, in his Kremlin fortress. I mean, simply had to push buttons, you know, for for you know for all kinds of riots and bad things to break out. I mean, I think it was a uh, uh, Susan Rice who, in, in the middle of the, of the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, blamed blamed uh, you know uh, rioting and violence on Russia. Russia was somehow responsible. Russia was sowing discord, and this and this this theme has gotten stronger and stronger, uh, and to the point where it helped, you know, spark the uh, the February twenty fourth invasion of the Ukraine. So, uh, so the Republic, the Democrats are really, really he- heavily invested in this uh, anti Russian demonization, and now they're doing the same with regard to uh, China and Taiwan. There's a, another. Uh, I, I consider this a data point that I think is related. Uh, The Charlotte Observer reports most Democrats don't want Biden to run in 2024. Fifty six percent of Democrats and Democratic leaning independents polled say the party should choose a different nominee with only 35 percent favoring another Biden run. I see a direct correlation between the sentiments of Democrats and Democratic leading leaning independents with this bellicose, jingoistic rhetoric, policy, and language because we can't seem to find the money to take care of problems at home, but we can find billions of dollars to send around the world so that Ukrainian government officials can raise their salaries. Ukrainians can have pensions, which are harder and harder to find in this country. And even some folks can have some walk around money. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I think that what we're seeing is a is a growing split between the, the the Democratic Party rank and file, you know, Democratic supporters, people who vote Democratic usually uh, and the party leadership. And the party leadership is is increasingly neocon, um, and the the rank and file, the ordinary voters who lean democratic, are not. They don't want war. They don't understand why the U.S. is always going to war. Uh, they wish it would stop. Um, they don't. They don't understand. You know how things got so bad in the Ukraine so quickly. Um, and but at the at the other end, at the, at the top of the party, you know, people are increasingly gung ho, and all you know, any resistance whatsoever to Biden's uh, Biden's uh, pro war policies has fallen away. And to that point, responsible statecraft has a piece. Biden trashes what remained of U.S. one China policy, strategic ambiguity. Biden has moved us all a very large step closer to conflict with China. In his 60 Minutes interview, he repeated his past statement saying the U.S. would go to war with China if it were to attack Taiwan. My first question, uh, Daniel Lazar, is have you found anybody in China that's talking about invading Taiwan? Because I haven't. No, no. The US, China has no plans to, tie, to, to invade Taiwan. Uh, as far as anyone can determine, uh, and invading Taiwan would be no small feat. 
you know, it's far away. It's 100 miles off the coast. Uh, it's a very mountainous country. It would be a major military effort. And China has shown no appetite for that whatsoever. Um, but at the same time, this is really a battle over, over control of local waters. Um, and the U.S. is, uh, you know, Biden is talking about defending Taiwan because the U.S. is anxious to maintain a presence in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea um, and doesn't want China to think of it as, in any sense, its local waters. But how can China not see that as its local waters? And how would the U.S. you know respond if Chinese warships were you know were patrolling off the coast of San Diego? Um, And if the and if the if the if China was moving very aggressively to let it be known that it would control shipping along the California coastline. I, I mean, how would America respond? Uh, and, and, and Joe Biden only seems to think that America has got to respond ever more aggressively. It has got to extend its reach into the far corners of the globe. There's no, there is nowhere on earth where America's direct security interests are not threatened. You know, and so, so therefore, the U.S. is, you know, it's growing more and more aggressive as it stakes its claim, you know, ever farther away. Uh, and it's, it's, it's going to lead to a military conflict, sure as shooting. Two things. One, if the United States were to try to invade Taiwan, I'm trying to figure out how they would do it because – I think China has what are called, uh, you may have heard of these things, hypersonic missiles that, <laughs> that, that can sink aircraft carriers. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how the United States thinks it has the firepower that would enable it to, to successfully invade Taiwan. And the second thing is, when you listen to the reporting out from the Shanghai uh, cooperation organization, for example, they're talking trade. Now, I know that there are military elements to their discussions, but it seems to me that most of their military discussions seem to be defensive in nature in response to in their trying to respond to U.S. aggression. So it almost comes down to, as I like to say, don't start nothing, won't be nothing. Daniel Lazar. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, my understanding is that the is that the Pentagon has 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 you know engaged in various war games where they actually try to you know to 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 create various scenarios and, and they go lose every emotions. time. They lose every time because because this, and I think this has happened on eighteen different occasions. Mm-hmm. And 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 the reason is is that is that China enjoys a tremendous you know. Uh, home team advantage. <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's, you know, it, it has, it's, it's coastal defenses are bristling with hypersonics, which have been dubbed, as you say, carrier killers. Mm-hmm. Um, the U S is extremely vulnerable to them and it's, it's nearest bases are hundreds of miles away. I also think they have, they've increased their, their, their submarine fleet. Yes, yes, yes. So the, so, so the U S is highly vulnerable. I mean, every conceivable scenario shows the U.S. losing in the event of a, some kind of naval clash in the, in the South China Sea. But the U.S. 
keeps pushing on aggress- you know, more and more aggressively regardless. This is extremely foolish and extremely dangerous. Because, you know, if one U.S. aircraft carrier goes down, thanks to a, a Chinese hypersonic, then the U.S. will feel obliged to respond, you know, tenfold. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why on earth does a, does a, is America looking for a fight with a country of 1.4 billion people whose, whose, whose GDP now is, is a very close second to America's and which, reserves, you know, which, which maintains you know, deep reserves of military strength. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. I look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Asia Times has a piece, What Marcos Jr. Promised to America. Philippine leaders meeting with U.S. counterpart Biden marked a bilateral reset that could see greatly enhanced military ties. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, George Koo, as always, George, welcome back. Nice to be back, Wilmer. Uh, Before we get to Marcos Jr., I know you had some observations about uh, the funeral of the past British monarch, Elizabeth. Right. Well, you know, that funeral is a big deal from a worldwide point of view. And, uh, And the... Press, the Western media, and, and even some of the Asian media was all all twittered by how Biden, you know, was able to attend in his own bulletproof car, and not only that, he shipped over something like sixty different limousines to have a uh, to escort him to the funeral. Whereas every other head of state were asked to ride on a big coach, you know, on a bus, and, and go together to the funeral. Well, what the Western media did not report was that the only other representative to the funeral that rode in his own car provided by, the, by his embassy was former Vice President Wang Qishan representing China. He didn't have to ride on a coach. He rode in his own car. But the West wouldn't report on that. Why? Because what that showed was that the British royalty understood mm. which, side of, which side of their toast the, the butter is put on. And Prince Charles was supposed, supposedly greeted Wangji San warmly and, and talk about how great the friendship is between UK and China, Prince Charles obviously understands that the British British economy is is such in such a big tank, tanking so hard that if anybody's going to save their save the UK neck, it's going to be China. So 
the 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 Prime Minister Liz Truss may not know what she's doing, but give Charles the monarch some credit. He understands what the issues is. And to your point about the British knowing which side their toast is buttered on, it's only toasted on one side. So, (laughs) (laughs) So what Marcos Jr. promised to America, after six years of disruptive relations under Philippine President Duterte, the U.S. and its oldest ally in Asia have formally reset and restored their historically strong ties. What does this mean going forward, George Koo? Well, you know, first of all, we, we need to know that the, the writer of this piece, um, I, I can't pronounce his long name. Richard has, Javad uh, Hyderian. Yeah, by Hyderian. He has a longstanding bias, a pro-U.S., pro-West bias. So you have to look at whatever he reports um, you know, in in a in in a rose tinted glass, because that's what he would like to see. He would like to see the Philippines get back together into the warm embrace of the American military. Now, I don't have any evidence to the contrary, but I think Marcos Jr. is a smart guy, and he may be trying to move away from Duterte's position and trying to play China and U.S. against each other to take advantage, to make certain advantages for the Philippines. And, and that's the direction that I think he should be um, thinking about and doing what's best for, for his country, to just simply hand over the keys to the military bases to the U.S. I don't think that's a particularly bright move for, on his part. The article continues, Marcos Jr.'s new strategic orientation is music to the ears of Washington, which views the Philippines as a critical partner in dealing with simmering conflicts over Taiwan and in the South China Sea. To your point of Marcos Jr. being a pretty smart guy, you don't have to be that smart to understand you don't want to get in the middle of the Taiwan-U.S. conflict. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's interesting that um, that Biden gave Marco such a nice, warm, touchy-feely meeting, uh, whereas, as our friend K.J. No pointed out, Biden wouldn't give the South Korean President Young uh, even 40-some seconds mm-hmm. of, of uh, time, time of day. So... Why is that? Because South Korea should figure very importantly in what Biden is looking to do. But I think Biden figures he's got South Korea in his hip pocket, but he doesn't have Philippines in his hip pocket by any means. So he has to make nice to Marco, but he didn't quite feel that he needed to do that for uh, South Korean's President Jung. That could be a blunder on Biden's part. And then we know that Biden has been doing a number of blunders. He would make rash statements and the White House staff would then have to walk it back and walk, walk the statement back. And that, that's happening repeatedly. I, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for Biden to build any kind of a coalition asking all of these countries to step, to sign up and step into the, American shadow 
against their own self-interest. And what is their self-interest? Self-interest is to continue to develop the economic trading relationships with China to get China's help and assistance in building infrastructures to partner with a country that does not make any demands on how you should operate, how you should rule, how you should uh, uh, conduct yourself, just simply to be just to be collaboration and to be cooperating and to be friends. And to that point, the South China Morning Post has a piece. Will South Korea get dragged into a Taiwan conflict? Hyun demurs, but there's 28,500 reasons it might, having to do, of course, with the number of U.S. troops that are stationed on the peninsula. My question here is, one would readily assume that South Korea would be on board. So this article gives an indication that it's not as clear-cut as one would be led to believe. Yeah, well, it's not at all clear-cut, Wilmer, because... From Yun's point of view, he doesn't want to offend China in any way whatsoever. And already, Nancy Pelosi and Biden is telling him that his semiconductor fabs, Samsung and all the others, they have to give up 40% of their business, which is the amount of business that's going to China. They're actually asking South Korea to slit their own economic belly just for the for the American cause, and he understood that, and he ducked that meeting with Pelosi. And now they're saying, "Hey, you got to get ready to fight um, to fight on the on the Taiwan side." And South the uh, South Korean president has to say, well, "What's in it for me? What's in it for my country to go and fight for Taiwan?" So he has a perfectly legitimate excuse at this point. He's saying, "Hey, wait a minute." I'm more concerned about North Korea and my troops and my concentration are going to be, um, you know, has to be reserved to guard against North Korea. So I'm not having any of it. And of course, the 20 odd, 28,000 some American troops, I suppose he has no control on that. And if the Americans are going to pull the troops out of South Korea to go and fight for Taiwan, there's nothing much he can do about it. But on the other hand, he also know the Americans are only interested in all these countries, Philippines and South Korea and others, to fight the proxy war for Americans. They don't want any American soldiers to get shot at and get killed. That's not the objective or the strategy of Washington. I'm glad you mentioned North Korea because North Korea has a mutual defense treaty with China and military analysts suggest it could coordinate with Beijing or take advantage of a crisis to pursue its own military goals. So South Korea looking at its border with North Korea, understanding that North Korea has a mutual defense treaty with China, South Korea saying for a number of reasons, this is not in my best interest. This in no way, shape or form can work for me. And it's so obvious. I don't know why. I mean, it's, it seems to me that Biden is, is, um, is tone deaf and visually impaired not to see that um, the issues that, he's, that he wants, that he's expecting, is totally against the interests of so, his so-called allies. So he is really, again, asking the allies to, you know, to slit their own throat just to, just to 
um, just to make make peace with Washington and to align with what Washington wants to do. And, you know, again, without going into all the details, they have seen what happens in Ukraine and they have seen what happened to the EU countries that step up to the line and sign on to American sanctions. They're paying the price and they're going to freeze the tail off this winter and Americans are not going to lift a finger to help them out. South China Morning Post reports China risks being, quote unquote, isolated from rest of the world, says India's Guatam Adani at Forbes Singapore conference. Adani says China's increasing nationalism, supply chain risk mitigation and technology restrictions is likely to affect connectivity with other economies. Uh, Who is this guy speaking on behalf of? Right. I don't know this guy. Um, apparently, he's super, super wealthy, but I'm not sure he has read any uh, read any foreign affairs magazine or <laughs> any other international issues, because China just got off the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Cooperation Organization uh, meeting in uh, Samarkand, and in the middle of September, just a, what a little over a week ago. And countries are breaking down the doors to sign on and to be part of SEO. And the latest is Iran, Belarus. And now, guess what? Saudi Arabia wants in. Turkey wants in. uh, Egypt is looking to get in. And there's a whole bunch of others. The sign-up list (laughs) is so long. And if you look at the U.S. sign-up list to align align with the U.S. to go against China— I don't think there's this one sign <laughs> one new signatory on the on the list. And and it's obvious the SEO does not require um political agenda, does not require military alliance. It's just for cooperation, mm-hmm. just for sharing intelligence on on anti terrorists to work together okay. on infrastructure, on trading, and boy, um it's such a refreshing difference from that to the Washington approach. You know, even arch rivals like Saudi Arabia and Iran, like India mm-hmm. and Pakistan, mm-hmm. they're all members of SEO because they, they can set aside their differences and look for common interests and work on common grounds. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Charlotte Observer reports most Democrats don't want Biden to run in 2024. According to polls, who do they want instead? Well, let's see. Following months of underwater approval ratings and despite an improvement in recent weeks, a decisive majority of Democrats say they do not want President Joe Biden to be the party's nominee for president in 2024. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. She's the co-editor of Popular Resistance, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Wilmer. 
So 56% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents polled say the party should choose a different nominee, with only 35% favoring another Biden run. This is according to an ABC News Washington Post poll that was released just uh, ooh, two days ago. The poll surveyed 1,006 adults, nine, 908 of whom were registered voters, had a margin of error, Plus or minus three and a half points. That's that's a pretty reliable number. Your thoughts, Dr. Margaret Flowers? Well, I think the Democratic voters have always been or have, at least for my adult life, been in a different place from where the party establishment is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at the issues that Democratic voters support, universal health care, free education, affordable housing, decent wages, strong unions. And then you see that the establishment Democrats and those in political power like Biden are not you know, representing the people. So this is not a surprise to me, plus the fact that really uh, he has not departed in a lot of important ways from what we saw you know, during the Trump administration. And it's interesting to your point about the disconnect, because while on the campaign trail, Joe Biden ran on an incredibly progressive agenda. I mean, there were a number of things that he you know, getting back into the JCPOA, canceling all student debt, free college, which later became free community college. But even if even free community college would have been an incredible step forward. Living wage. I mean, there were a number of very progressive ideas that Joe Biden put forward that were very consistent and overwhelmingly supported, not only by Democrats, but by Americans. And he hasn't been able to deliver. Well, hasn't been able to or hasn't chosen to. But I mean, isn't that always the way it is? They do their polling. They have their focus groups. They know what the voters want to hear. And they know how to say it in a way that the voters hear what they want to hear. Not, you know, while the politicians, but Obama was a, was a master at this, you know, at making it sound like he was with the people. But if you really looked at what was being said, uh, he was not actually <laughs> espousing those those opinions. You know, it's also interesting that these numbers, 56 percent of Democrats and Democratic leaning independents, this is not a outlier or a blip on the screen. This is consistent with Joe Biden's very low polling numbers for a number of months. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are in, you know, every year it just feels like the crises uh, get worse, the wealth inequality, the climate crisis, the, the suffering from, you know, as I said, lack of health care and people in debt. And, you know, the, I, I think we need to understand that it's the Democrats who say they stand for something and then don't deliver that are, you know, driving people away from the party, driving people to have any faith on, you know, in them and pushing us. I was just reading Chris Hedges article about <laughs> fascism and the rise of the right, you know, in, in so many other countries. They open this vacuum space for the right to come in and be the ones who are speaking to the people, you know, and, and calling out the, the, the failures of the Democratic Party. It, it just puts us in a very bad position in this country. Republicans, on the other hand, are more evenly split on whether Donald Trump should be their nominee 
47% saying he should be, 46% saying a new candidate should be on the ballot. This, to me, speaks volumes about the divisions within the country, as well as how entrenched people are in their positions. Right, right. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting that there's still that much support for, for President Trump, you know, after the four years that we spent with them. But, um, you know, he's been trying to, to, his folks have been trying to take over that party and, and they're not completely succeeding, are they? Now, here's something that I find also very interesting. A lot of folks don't want to talk about this. When you look at, okay, Democrats and Democratic-leaning voters don't want Biden. 21% of respondents to a July poll said Kamala Harris would be the perfect candidate in place of Biden, followed closely by Hillary Clinton with 19%. That's not good numbers. No, and, and it, you know, the bench is not deep on the Democratic Party side, obviously. I mean, pulling Hillary Clinton out again, uh, I mean, haven't people been pretty clear about the lack of support for her and the, the you know, the baggage that she carries? Um, but then look at Kamala Harris, and I think, you know, half the time I can't understand what she's actually saying. You know, she's just puts out words, but they're not really saying anything substantive. Which was her major problem when she ran. And uh, what did she didn't even get 3% of the, of the, so this, these numbers don't surprise me. And I would suspect that if she were to run that with this 21% number would drop to your point as soon as she started talking. Right. But then again, you know, it comes down to it and it's it's about money, right? It's about which party has the savviest campaign. And, you know, it's it's so interesting how, you know, people don't really have to say anything. But if you put out enough videos and ads and things with the right message and imaging and the, and the motion pulling and the scare tactics, people will vote for them anyway. White House plan to cancel student loan debt costs $400 billion. The substantial price tag added fresh fuel to raging debate over a policy expected to benefit more than 40 million borrowers. Margaret, it's amazing to me how when socially advantageous programs such as the cancellation of student debt are put before the people— Articles such as this come out about, oh, we just can't afford it. This is just too much. But there wasn't really a whole lot of cry with with the Trump tax cuts. And not to mention, I think Congress just approved another $27 billion to go to Ukraine. Right. And I think, isn't that over? That's over a long period of time. That's not just a one-year uh, figure. But I, and I don't think that they're adding in the economic harm that's been done by having these generations in such debt. Young people who come out of college with the equivalent of a house mortgage in debt, uh, just as they're starting out you know, in their careers. And so people are postponing buying homes or postponing starting families. They're not participating in the economy. If we didn't have that student debt, you know, what is the multiplier effect that we would see in economic benefit? That's never really considered. They just look at the federal 
you know, the federal spending. So, of course, they can make it look terrible. Well, I'm glad you said that because that that was going to be my next point is that they're talking about canceling up to twenty thousand dollars in student debt for eligible borrowers. And so that doesn't mean all debt. That doesn't mean all people. And to your point, particularly as we find ourselves now in the economic situation that we're in. And when you really start to peel back the numbers and look at the look at the numbers, this inflation issue is not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. We, I think right now we'd love to have a demand side inflation problem because that would mean that people actually have money and that people are actually trying to spend the money that they have. Uh, instead of worrying about evictions and worrying about foreclosures and worrying worrying and and having to work two and three uh, jobs just to be poor. Right, right. And, and choosing between sending their children to college or seeking medical treatment that they may need. I've, you know, I've seen people make that decision before. But, you know, I, I know um, Alan Falange of the Student Loan Justice often makes the point that for the federal student debt, which I think is the bulk of it, that money has already been paid out to the colleges. Mm-hmm. So canceling it really doesn't mean that the government has to put out more money, right? They've already spent that money. They can just say, okay, we spent the money. It's gone. You don't have to pay us back, you know? So, and, and to your point, you know, it's not like we don't have enough money in this country to provide for the basic needs of people. We mm-hmm. could have national health care, you know, universal health care. We could have free college. We could have investment in affordable housing, strong pensions, strong wages. It's just that the money is being siphoned off from the people to the, to the wealthy. And, you know, to your point, tax cuts and tax cuts, right, for corporations and for wealthy individuals. If we went after that money, we could really have a completely different you know, economy where where people could have prosperity and could live with dignity. And I think we can say that there is a statistically relevant correlation between the countries that have the programs that you're talking about and the amount that those countries spend on defense. And uh, there's an inverse relationship between the amount of money that these countries are spending on their defense budgets and the amount of money that these people are spending, that these countries are spending on social programs and quality of life programs in Norway, in Sweden, in, you know, all over Europe, many countries in the uh, in the East. And they don't have to spend the money on the defense side because we're taking care of that for them. Right, right. And I think, you know, what's interesting is that so – the United States is spending so much on defense. And I think what people need to understand is that there's this surplus of military equipment and weapons. And so that is being given basically to the local police departments. And so as people are, you know, struggling and fighting back, that militarization also comes home. It also impacts our communities directly. And I was just looking at a study about you know, the, the rise of, of, you know, mass incarceration is really focused now in rural communities where they've had this 
this increase in budgets for police and for you know militarization you know military equipment and and uh, and then the police use that you know on on the people in the community so it, it hurts us in so many ways as well as hurting people around the world but it's a matter of priorities and it's clear that the United States priorities are not with meeting the needs of the people, which is a core function of a government. And we have just about a minute left. And I think there's also a, a correlation between the deindustrialization of America, meaning the manufacturing and industrial jobs aren't there, and the rise in incarceration rates in this country. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, when people are in poverty, they're they're pushed to, you know, extremes and and uh, and also just, I mean, the criminalization of 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 everything, really, it feels like, you know, criminalization of homelessness uh, in this country. Mm-hmm. So criminalization of debt in this country, uh, people in, in prison because they're in debt. So, yeah, it's a it's a sad situation, but it, there, there's definitely a lot of connections there and we need to. As I always say, we need to organize and turn it around. Dr. Margaret Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. RT has a piece entitled, Eurozone Economic Growth May Drop to Zero. ECB economic output has been suffering due to rising energy costs. Eurozone economic growth has slumped and could soon wind down to zero, the European Central Bank, the ECB, vice president said yesterday. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahi. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. Quote, we are seeing that in the third and fourth quarters, there is a significant slowdown and we may find ourselves with growth rates close to zero. Luis de Guindo said at the conference, according to Reuters, how significant of a problem is this, Dr. Tawheed? And then the second part of that question is, how difficult is it going to be for Europe to pull out of the nosedive? Well, I think it's. I think this uh, this uh, decreased growth rate, uh, this recession that that uh, the eurozone is going into is, of course, significant, and it's, and it's significant for a couple of reasons. It's not just significant because there's a you know uh, a, a slowdown because of of uh, consumer spending slowing down. There's a slowdown because supply is slowing down. Um, the the sanctions on on uh, Russian oil and gas is causing a huge increase in energy costs in Europe, uh, which is which is causing um, many large companies to shut down. Now, small companies are are in deeper trouble. They're going out of business, and um, many of them are going bankrupt. Uh, the larger companies are not going out of business. They are in fact, moving their operations elsewhere. Once that's done, 
when you are, it, it makes it very difficult for for these uh, large companies in Europe to to go back to Europe to reestablish uh, their their businesses there if if that's their intention. And so, you know, once you begin to to, to, to shut down plants and uh, workers are, are laid off and they um, uh, lose skill and um, other incentives, then it's very difficult to restart this process. So, so this is this is not a, a, a just a, a slowdown. This is a a a, uh, a transplantation of industry out of Europe to other parts of the world. So what do you say to those who say that this is, in fact, a major part of the United States plan? I don't have to elaborate. I think that question is pretty clear. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think I think, you know, that that analysis, which was was uh, the first the first um, time that analysis became type of analysis became public was in an article uh, by by Michael Hudson, a colleague of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in, in February, early February, before uh, Russia's special military operation. And uh, so he kind of presaged the idea that uh, the, the real target for, for uh, at least the, the U.S. is not, Europe, it's not Russia, or at least they're, they're only part of the target. The other part of the target is Germany. Uh, one, because Germany was moving to actually strengthen its ties to, to Russia. Uh, Nord Stream 2 would have made that even, even stronger than it has been. And Germany is, was an industrial, is an industrial giant. Uh, relying on Russian oil uh, and Russian gas, and uh, is uh, growing has been growing to become competitive to the U.S. Uh, in in and in, in fact superior in many instances. And so, yeah, I think I think that analysis that uh, by Hudson is gaining more and more legs as we go on, because the question has to be asked: Why are European leaders allowing their economy to fall into recession? Uh, from uh, having to, to cl- shut down because of high energy costs, when in fact the sanctions are hurting them more than they're hurting Russia. Why? Why? Why are they allowing this to continue? And uh, and uh, it, it it seems as if this is one part of a plan, uh, and it has to be a plan that's outside of Europe. It has to be a, a plan that's being directed by the U.S. and perhaps the U.K. as well. And to those who hear Michael Hudson's analysis and say, oh, that's just conspiracy theory, well, if you go back to 2014 and the United States Maidan coup and the overthrow of the, I think it was the Lukashenko government, why did the United States do that? Because he was forming economic relations with Russia and the United States wasn't going to have it. So at least that was a part of the reason why the United States did that. So my point there is there is very recent historic precedent for that analysis. The European Central Bank raised interest rates earlier this month by an unprecedented 75 basis points or or uh, three quarters of a point right after uh, or in line with the United States doing the same. You know, when I listen to these central bankers, I, for example, in the morning when I'm driving to Baltimore, I, I listen to NPR. And if, you, if you're not careful, you'll get lulled into believing that raising interest rates is the proper strategy. Why are the Europeans falling in line with the U.S. central bank? 
Yeah, I think I think part of that analysis uh, that that gives it more legs is 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 a discussion we've also had uh, uh, here uh, between the difference between industrial capitalism and financial capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, industrial capitalism uh, it cares about where things are produced. So Germany wants to have a strong manufacturing base. Uh, the U.S. when it was industrial capital wanted to have a strong manufacturing base. Uh, that, of course, means that you have uh, also strong labor. You have education that uh, is going to teach um, um, advanced skills. And you have labor unions. All, these are all things that Europe has until recently. Europe has, uh, particularly Germany, has a strong labor movement. It has uh, social safety nets. It has free education. Uh, industrial capitalism cares about where things are produced, and so it's going to make sure that the labor is taken care of. Financial capitalism does not care. It only cares about profit. And so if the process is that you move manufacturing out of Germany to the U.S., uh, financial capitalists, those who are going to invest, uh, be investors and, and receive the, uh, the the profit from those, they don't care whether Germany uh, uh, survives or not. They don't care whether Europe survives or not. Uh, they'll, they'll move their, their, their factories anywhere they can make an increased profit. And by the way, that has the side effect, of course, weakening labor in, in, in Europe. Uh, destroying the social safety net, and there's lots of discussion about, you know, privatizing Social Security and so forth. That's all part of that neoliberal process. And, uh, you know, the idea of free education is, is gone by the wayside. So, so this is financial capitalism, and the neoliberals are, in fact, colonizing Europe, turning Europe into a colony of the U.S., uh, but that's for profit's sake. Moon of Alabama has a piece, the U.S. is winning its war on Europe's industries and people. German economy deteriorated significantly in September. IFO business climate index continues to fall. Michael Hudson explained why. And what the U.S. needed was to provoke Russia and later China to react in reacting U.S. arranged threats. Here's the thing. Russia and China, I don't think, are they are reacting, but not in the manner that the United States intended. Yeah, the sanctions that, that were intended to not only weaken Germany, but also weaken Russia, is certainly weakening Germany and, and therefore the rest of the, of the EU. Germany is the largest economy in Europe. But, it, but, it, but it's not having the effect on Russia that it was intended, because since the Maidan Revolution, um, in 2014, the Russians, uh, Putin, in, fa- in fact, and, and Russians have understood that they needed to be more self-sufficient uh, than they than they had been. That they could not uh, depend on their economy being supported by 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 U.S. or Western efforts in general. So they have become more self-sufficient. So even though their their oil is being sanctioned, they are actually in selling less oil and and making and making more profits than they than they had been before even though they're, they're selling that oil in many cases at a discount. Uh, and, and so uh, it hasn't, you know, half the, of, of the plan is working. It is certainly winning the war in Europe, but it's not winning the war in Russia. Germany secures just one tanker of LNG, liquefied natural gas, from UAE, United Arab Emirates. Berlin has inked a deal for further LNG supplies, but it's not binding. German utility RWE has inked a deal with Abu Dhabi National Oil Company for delivery of liquefied natural gas, the company announced on Sunday. 
that's not as warming of the heart as one would think, no pun intended, Dr. Tawheed. Yeah, I, I think I think there's there's going to be some time um, we need to kind of think about what's going on here because there are two possibilities. One is that the UAE is um, um, partnering in a sense with with the Russians and and maintaining the Russian um, um, I guess response to the sanctions. Another is is that it's uh, uh, going with the U.S. agenda. <laughs> And making sure that Germany doesn't get the gas that it needs to to reignite its industry. So either either way, uh, Germany is still going down the tubes uh, on this. But but as to the what what's driving this for the UAE, uh, I don't think uh, there's enough information out there yet. But but either way, it, uh, Germany is is in trouble. Uh, it has no political power uh, or or ability to partner with with the places where it could get. A gas to replace Russian Russian gas. Plus, plus that can't happen overnight. I mean, you know, get, uh, replacing replacing gas means pipelines, and those pipelines have to be built. As China and Russia are building pipelines. Yes, absolutely. And other pipelines are being built. So, what this says to me is that, and I think we touched on this at the very beginning, that these changes aren't temporary that these relationships aren't temporary and that once the spring comes, if people in Europe haven't frozen to death, you're not going to be able to just flip the switch and get things back to, quote unquote, normal. Yes. I mean, there's a question to be asked as to why are European leaders going on, going along with this. And again, uh, they have uh, succumbed to the neoliberal uh, 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 idea that uh, it doesn't really matter where things are made. It's just a matter of investment for them. And, and we've known from revelations in uh, the Panama Papers and others that these European leaders, these elites in Europe and around the world, have their financial interests um, uh, globally, not in any particular country. And, and so... Uh, hence fi- hence finance capitalism versus uh, industrial capitalism. Exactly. And, and so, you know, we, we, we see the European leaders looking out for their own interests. Now, the question is, are European citizens going to allow their economies and their standards of living to collapse? Or are they going to, to make moves to replace uh, their leaders? And we have just about a minute left as right-wing politicians in these countries step up and claim to fill the void and gain more traction and power that won't necessarily be the solution either. Well, you, you know, you, when you talk about the right wing in Europe, we have like uh, almost two poles. We have Viktor Orban in, um, um, uh, who, in, in Hungary, who is um, uh, decidedly pro-Putin, uh, realizing that I think Hungary gets about 80 to 90 percent of its, of its energy, oil and gas, from Russia. And, in, and Orban uh, is not willing to sacrifice his citizens for that. Uh, but then you have Maloney in Italy, newly elected, who is supporting the Ukraine. So the right wing are on both sides uh, of this. And so how that how that turns out as, as governments become right wing uh, is, I think, uncertain right now. At least uncertain for me. Maybe it's, certain, it's more certain for someone else. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. You are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Cuba says yes to same-sex marriage and adoption for LGBTQ plus couples, as well as Venezuelan feminists push for abortion rights. Cuba says yes to the new family code during the referendum held last Sunday, guaranteeing equal marriage and adoption rights for same-sex couples in the island's legislation, among other relevant advances on civil and family rights. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former assistant secretary of Education and Public Service at the Smithsonian Institution and board member at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., James Counts Early. James, as always, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back with you, particularly on uh, these uh, pressing topics in south of us in the United States um, in Cuba and Venezuela and other places. So the president of Cuba's National Electoral Council, Alina Balacero Gutierrez explained that 6,251,786 voters participated in the vote, representing 74% of the electoral roll. Although the results are not definitive, since some provinces have yet to be counted, Balacero indicated they are valid and the result is irreversible. First, James We have been told in this country ad nauseum that Cuba is a dictatorship, that Cuba is authoritarian, that they don't have democracy in Cuba, but I think they just held a national electoral, a national election, and some things, some policies are actually changing. Speak to that, debunking that narrative first before we get into the details here. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right that this is uh, uh, a fiction that has been put forth by both Republicans and Democrats in mainstream media in the United States. Let's just take a step back. So in uh, 2019, uh, Cuba voted in a new constitution, which uh, verified the country as a socialist country, with 87 percent of the population voting for that constitution. Uh, in that constitution, it codified uh, the gender rights uh, in that constitution. So 87%. Now, people can say, well, they get guns at the heads of uh, several million Cubans. No, uh, this is an act of democracy, the demos, the ordinary people with their quasha, with their proactivity, deciding uh, what they want to vote in. And so they voted in that constitution. In 2019, at the same time, a study commission was put together to look at the 1975 a family code, which was operating uh, up until yesterday's vote. Uh, and they put together a commission of jurists, sociologists, and psychologists. Uh, in the last few months, after 25 versions or drafts put together from thousands of meetings, but between uh, February and April, uh, there were something like 79,000 meetings across the nation of Cuba. Now, that seems fantastic to people, but that's doable because you're talking about a population of 11 million people. And if you put a conscious orientation to facilitating a proactive citizenship, um, out of that uh, 79,000 meetings, there were something like 400,000 revisions suggested by the citizens. And so 
Uh, this family code then yesterday was put to a direct referendum, a direct Democratic referendum, and where the results that you just gave of seventy uh, percent of the people voting, uh, yes. But here is an issue that I think we should look at. There's been a lot of understandable focus on the democratic rights of LGBTQ+, uh, very, very important. But the family code is much broader than that. It removes terms such as stepfather uh, so that uh, they're looking at what, it, what are, they say, the affection relations of people, not the secondary terms are, are somehow lowering the value of, of having a, 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 a stepmother or a stepfather, as we would say here in the United States. The question is, what is the love and responsibility relations? Uh, it looks at the issues of the elderly with, and families and family responsibilities for their care. Uh, so this is a humanistic frame that has juridical uh, implications around it. Uh, tomorrow, I'm actually going to moderate uh, at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning for ASERE, A-S-E-R-E, which is a progressive lobby around Cuba on whose uh, advisory board I, I said I'm going to moderate a discussion with three members of Cuban civil society, three uh, Cuban uh, experts, three women uh, who are experts in um, constitutional law. And so they'll look at the backdrop of the 2019 Constitution in which the Cuban citizens express themselves, uh, their expertise in family and civil codes. So we'll look more deeply into uh, what has just occurred. And, and we will also look at the issue of community-based anti-racist organizations in Cuba. Many people don't know that there is a presidential commission in Cuba um, established by President uh, Diaz-Canals who convenes that. Uh, not to talk in abstract terms, but to speak in very specific terms of what are the implications of racial identity, the connection between racial identity, national identity, racism, and discrimination, their terms, not my terms. And so this Presidential Commission Against Racism and, and Discrimination has been looking into such issues as tourism, uh, incarceration, uh, other racialized dimensions of Cuban society, uh, and including the inadvertent one of people who left Cuba did not look black like me. Uh, they looked Euro-Americans. Uh, and so when they send money home uh, to their communities, uh, it has a differential uh, impact from a racial point of view. So in this context, Cuba, which is under severe economic war um, called here by the U.S. Congress an embargo by the Cubans, a blockade, uh, attempts at regime change, which has been very explicit, uh, was the Biden-Harris administration actually intensifying many of the Trump administration uh, bans on Cuba and restrictions on Cuba's ability to trade in the banking arena and with other nations. Uh, the Cubans nevertheless look internally at their, at their own democratic issues and have striven forth uh, with this extraordinary family code, which many say, not just inside Cuba, but outside of Cuba, that it is the avant-garde global uh, family code. Cuba is mainly a Roman Catholic country. What does it say to you about the progressive nature of Cuban politics, where the island can vote overwhelmingly on issues such as this, whereas in the United States, who claims to be progressive, who claims to be uh, democratic, who claims to operate and, and protect the world for democracy— has just had the Dobbs decision, and there is still such a fight in the street amongst so-called Christians 
And when you look at the numbers in the United States, they don't represent the majority of interest or they don't represent the majority of those in favor of a woman's right to choose in the United States. Is that a fair question to ask or fair comparison to draw? No, no, that is indeed is a fair question to ask and and the implications uh, to draw from that. But one clarification, I would say, I haven't looked at the statistics in recent years. But dating back uh, at least 20 years or so, the Cuban Communist Party noted that the majority religious expressions in Cuba are these Afro-Cuban expressions okay. uh, called popularly by the name of Santeria, but Abacua and other kinds of really. And these are not just brown or black skinned Cubans because religion, like other cultural manifestations, uh, is learned behavior. It is not mm-hmm. genetically uh, determined. And so that um, the power of these popular African religions, which you see in in the language, uh, in the food ways, uh, in the definitely in the music, in the ballet, uh, one of the world's three most important ballet companies since 1959, when Alisa Alonso, uh, the prima ballerina who died a few years ago, uh, when Fidel Castro asked her, what would it take to make a world-class uh, ballet, and I think he gave a couple hundred thousand dollars, and she indeed went out and did that. So the context here is that Cuba was, by way of comparison, let's say, to Brazil or to Mexico or, or Argentina with regard to Catholicism, was never as intensely, as strongly, as pervasively Catholic as these other countries. And the large importation of enslaved Africans who maintain their cultural viewpoints and, and outlooks and ritual practices uh, has really informed that. But in that context, there was major pushback from uh, the Cuban Catholic Church and, and some elements of Protestantism in Cuba, which speaks to the democratic issue. That is the right of citizens to mm-hmm. raise their view or actively critique and to inform the process. So that uh, Cuba is is diverse like many other countries, but it has never been as strong in its Catholicism. The implications, though, hemispherically are that if little Cuba, 11 million people on a planet of 8 billion people, uh, almost 1 billion of whom live in the Americas from Canada to the uh, to the end of, of, of Argentina, if little Cuba of 11 million people in the midst of this economic war blockade and regime change uh, impact on it from the United States government, can step forward internally and negotiate these differences in a direct referendum of its citizens. It has major implications and will have resonance for how other countries look at these these serious democratic issues, as is the issue here in the United States of LGBTQT+. It is, a, it is a democracy issue. It is the right of each person to express themselves, um, not to put upon others, but to express themselves and have the right to organize their constructs of family and love and affection and productivity to the common good, no matter who they sleep with, how they sleep with. Um, but these are hard, heavy questions that go back centuries of patriarchy, male-dominant perspective, as the Cuban president mentioned these patriarchal ways, even in the context of the Cuban Revolution since 1959, has made it very difficult for these kinds of expressions. Uh, Miguel Barnett, a well-renowned poet um, and former head of the Union of Artists and Writers in Cuba, uh, who was oppressed because of his homosexuality, was uh, formerly a member of the Central Committee of the Cuban Communists of the National Assembly of Cuba, uh, spoke out in the last few days in tears 
of how thankful he was mm-hmm. for this democratic effort. I'll stop on this point because Cuba, historically in the context of the revolution, was very backward, brutally backward, uh, putting homosexuals into camps, mm-hmm. uh, as we see in the United States, to, to have them sort of reconceive themselves in a male perspective. But they've made a revolutionary breakthrough, if you will, uh, with this family code. We have just about two minutes left. Venezuelans and Colombians celebrate the historical reopening of the border. Talk about that in the broader shift in the global south as we are moving from a unipolar to a multipolar context. Tremendously important. Uh, Colombia, the most complex Afro-descent country in the hemisphere with Raizales, Palanqueros, which is also a language base, and then just ordinary Afro-Colombians have been among the primary victims, one might argue, the most uh, important victims of the almost 70-year civil war and and the right-wing violence uh, from the Uribe government and the follow-up recent government of Duque, with eight military U.S. bases in Colombia uh, directed to the heart against self-determination in Latin America. That border, which uh, the late President Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, I think, closed in 2008, more or less, because of a U.S. military attempt against him. Uh, trade at that point was upwards of $7 billion a year between the two countries. So it will have major economic impact. And as both uh, the president, uh, Petro, the new president of Colombia, and Maduro of Venezuela have said, uh, this new economic flow should affect the people right on both sides of the border. And what is not said by mass media here in the United States, and really the lying nature of the U.S. State Department on these issues, there are almost over four, four million, four and a half million um, Colombians living in Venezuela as a result of that war. It was up to six million at one point. But we only hear about the outward migration uh, from Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua now coming to the U.S. But there are these internal migratory issues. So this is a democratic, self-determined regional um, mm, context mm. and development in the context of the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations uh, who have explicitly excluded the U.S. and Canada, although 99% of them have bilateral relationships to both of those countries, for a self-determined region, and they will call it a region of peace uh, to find their mutual interests, as is the case of the opening of this border, and to follow the rules of the, the protocols of the United Nations on okay. how countries should handle their differences. James Counts Early, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you. Look forward to it. Take care. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. 
Fears of sabotage as gas pours into Baltic from Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. Gas is pouring into the Baltic Sea from three separate leaks on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines amid claims by seismologists in Sweden and Denmark of two sharp spikes in undersea activity, possibly indicating explosions and speculation about sabotage. For insight into this, and this is just breaking, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, as always, welcome back. Thank you very much, Wilmer. Good to be here. A seismograph on the Danish island of Bornholm, near where the leaks occurred, twice recorded spikes yesterday, the day on which the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines underwent dramatic falls in pressure, the German Geological Research Center, GFZ, said. Steve, what's going on? Well, I, I woke up this morning. I was telling you before we went live, we had a different show planned on AM Wake Up this morning. And this was, uh, this was right in my, my newsfeed and my face at the time. Uh, they had confirmed that Nord Stream 2 had, had been, uh, they were suggesting blown up. Uh, and then as we were, so right as we were going on the air, it was confirmed that Nord Stream 1 also uh, very heavily speculated that it was blown up. And then as the morning and afternoon has progressed, we've not only found out that uh, Ann Applebaum's husband, whose name escapes me at the moment, he's a Polish member uh, of parliament, tweeted out a picture of the explosion from, you know, above. And it said, thank you, USA. Uh, that the uh, United States military was running a program called Balt Ops, B-A-L-T-O-P-S, over the summer, off the coast of Bordholm, of all places, where they were running a simulation as to what might happen if somebody exploded a pipeline. Um, the CIA themselves warned the German government two weeks ago. And again, all of this has come out in probably... I, the last half an hour, the last couple of things that I'm talking about have come out in about the last half hour. Uh, the, the CIA warned the German government a couple of weeks ago that uh, the Nord Stream pipelines were under imminent threat uh, of being sabotaged. So this is, I mean, it's all breaking, it's all developing. I'm not, I'm not saying with any certainty what happened. We're learning in real time. This is one of those situations, Wilmer, where if the coincidences keep going all the same direction, though, it's, it's hard to ignore and keep calling them coincidences. Oh, and Victoria Newland and Joe Biden both uh, like vaguely threatened to end one way or the other Nord Stream if, if Russia stepped into Ukraine. Well, I remember very clearly when uh, Olaf Scholz came to the United States and met with Biden, they're standing in the Rose Garden. This was shortly after Biden was sworn in, and a reporter asked Biden, "What about Nord Stream Two? And Biden said, "It's not going to happen." And the, and another reporter said, "Well, wait a minute. How can you say that when it's not an American pipeline?" And and Biden looked at he said, uh, "Look, it's not going to happen." And Schultz didn't say anything. And Biden gave this creepy. It wasn't a grin. It was almost a sneer. Right as he finished the, hey, look going to happen. He almost did his whisper thing. Right. And this uh, to because Garland's not here, let's point out John Bolton's book where he said that uh, you know, 
the EU was the second biggest threat to American hegemony outside of, of what he perceived uh, to be, you know, an alliance between Russia and China. Um, and Donald Trump going to, uh, going to NATO and going to uh, the German prime minister saying, you guys, you guys, you guys get a lot of your energy from Russia and we give you a lot of money. And boy, wouldn't it be a shame if all of a sudden, you know, either we stop giving you money or you stop getting that Russian energy. Like it's almost like a long mafia protection racket gone very, very awry. So this is from The Guardian. Amid the speculation over sabotage, suspicion immediately turned to potential culprits with fingers pointed at Russia. At Russia. Whose pipelines were hit, suggesting a further weaponization of energy supplies to Europe in the midst of the conflict in Ukraine. Now, Steve, help me out. (laughs) So the United States is the one that is not allowing the, the pipeline to be turned up. Correct. The United States is the one most threatened by the pipeline being turned up. Two for two. Russia is in the business of providing natural gas to Europe. Correct. The United States is sanctioning European countries, not allowing them to buy natural gas from Russia. You are killing it, Wilmer. Well, I hang out with Steve Poikinen. So <laughs> so why would Russia blow up its own pipeline? Pi- I'm sorry, pipelines. Clearly, because uh, in the absence of Alexander Dugan, Vladimir Putin is getting all of his talking points from Donald Trump, who is, as we all know, a master at 438 chess. And it's that interdimensional chess that is um, uh, what we're not seeing because, uh, no, this is, a, of course, they have to point fingers at Russia and say, but Russia blew up their own pipeline. Why wouldn't they? It, it's They're running around telling the people in Europe, we don't care about your votes. We're going with NATO. We don't care what you say. You're going to be cold. We'll be fine. It, the the masks are all off. The cavalier attitude at which the people are just kind of openly congratulating the United States that are members of you know the European elite or people who are are part of the uh, uh, intelligentsia uh, as it is. I, it's it's wild. I've never really seen anything like this before. There are some indications that this is deliberate damage. You have to ask who would profit, one European security source told Reuters. Well, that's pretty simple. In fact, the, 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 the turbine rationale is working quite well for Russia they, because Canada hasn't been fixing the turbines and because of U.S. sanctions. Why would Russia feel compelled to blow up its pipeline when there are other factors not related to Russian action that are causing the slowdown in gas transmission. Right. Or better yet, why wouldn't Russia wait until the pipeline was fully operational? So then they could really damage 
the European. Let it go. Let it run for a few weeks. Let them get used to it again. You know, just long enough to take it away. Now, that's what I would do if I was an evil overlord running the, you know, trying to overthrow and reestablish the Soviet Union and beyond. That's how I play that. The steel pipe itself has a wall of 1.6 inches and is coated with steel reinforced concrete up to 11 centimeters thick. Each section of the pipe weighs 11 tons, which goes up to 24 to 25 tons after concrete is, is applied. Man, they, 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 and not to mention the ecologic damage that's done here. If you've got gas pouring into the Baltic Sea, that can't be good for the Baltic Sea. Not at all. They've already declared it uh, an environmental emergency. There were uh, bulletins issued throughout uh Denmark and Sweden saying, don't enter, don't go in for any reason. Um, now, I mean, it's also in their minds an active crime scene. So the, that could be a part of it too. But yeah, you can't just dump <laughs> liquid natural gas into the water and expect good things to happen. Man. Okay. Next topic. U.S. Most U.S. U.K. adults know nothing about files that Assange is charged with publishing. Most Americans and British adults don't know anything about the documents that the U.S. government is prosecuting WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange for publishing, according to a poll by Morning Consult. Steve Poikinen. This is something that we've been struggling with over the last several years of advocacy, even as uh, it's been stepped up in the wake of Julian's trafficking from the embassy into Belmarsh three and a half years ago at this point. Um, It's not the, the Obama administration did such a successful job doing a hit piece on the character of Julian Assange and the subsequent years of, I, I guess, public eye vanishment did a whole lot to erase not just America, but the UK's collective memory of WikiLeaks as an outlet in the first place. There have been so many people that have uh, mostly wrongly, sometimes rightly dominated the media landscape in the ensuing three and a half years, and people have goldfish brain now. So uh, if you're not if you're not constantly dominating the narrative, you're going to lose a lot of real estate in the collective memory. And this is something that we've always tried to, uh, you know, push back against, remind people of through all of the events at Action for Assange, with all of the work that Assange Defense has been doing. And we're going to talk about it a little bit, but if anyone was anywhere near Washington, D.C. on October 8th, take part in the sister event, the Department of Justice from noon to three. Uh, they're going to surround Parliament in the U.K., um, this really is, uh, I mean, it's another in a series of, but it's the first international action that's been getting a lot of quote unquote mainstreamish attention. Um, but it's only because of the fact that it's been buried for so long and so hard to get a word out about. Final story. Russia grants former NSA contractor Edward Snowden Russian citizenship. Vladimir Putin, Russian president, has granted former NSA contractor Edward Snowden Russian citizenship. He has been living in exile in Moscow. And your thoughts, Steve Poikinen? 
Well, um, it, it's an interesting move, and it at least allows Ed a little bit more maneuverability, a little bit more freedom than he's had while he's been there. He's been under kind of um, not necessarily blocking key, but his movements have been a little bit more restrictive, and he hasn't been able to do or say uh, as much as he would like to. So uh, I'm very glad that he's got the opportunity to hopefully speak his mind a little bit more. He's one of those voices that could be added to the conversation about Julian Assange, especially considering all of the ways in which Julian Assange helped make sure that Ed eventually was able to receive the citizenship. Wow, this is this is really I'm going back now to the fears of yeah. sabotage as this, I mean go, I, go go jump on Twitter <laughs> at some point just jump on Twitter and type this in or go to my Twitter okay all right <laughs> okay uh, Steve Poikinen, as always man thank you so much for your time greatly greatly appreciate your analysis looking forward to having you back thank you very much Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. At United Nations, Colombia condemns addiction to money and oil. Colombia's first ever left-wing president, Gustavo Petro, delivered a historic UN speech declaring the war on drugs has failed. He warned capitalism is destroying the environment and with its addiction to money and oil and called for debt relief for the global south. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq, Nicholas Davies, as always, Nick. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Wilmer. So Petro emphasized that drug addiction is a social problem and cannot be solved with violence and militarization. Rather, he argued, it is a mere symptom of a much deeper problem, the capitalist system itself with its addiction to money and oil. Your thoughts, Nick Davies. Yeah, this this year's UN General Assembly um, has been amazing. I've I've been following it for an article that I'm working on with Medea Benjamin, um, really about Ukraine, about that. Um, in fact, we counted 66 of the 190 uh, members speaking out strongly, uh, crying out for um, uh, an end to uh, the war in Ukraine and calling for, as the UN Charter calls for, for these differences to be settled peacefully. And so I think the um, the developing world, the global South, um, really found its voice at, at this General Assembly. And um, President Petro of Colombia was one of the earlier speakers and uh, helped to set the tone for that with, with the speech that, that you just described. Um, you know, the... The the way the way the world is presented to us as Americans is 
it, 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 it's all on a certain model. So there's a, a certain way of looking at things, a certain mm-hmm. way of explaining things mm-hmm. that, um, and and that that to me was the, the most refreshing thing about Petro's speech was that you know this this is this is the voice of this is the voice of the people this is the voice of of Latin America it's the voice of the indigenous people it's the it's the voice of of the global South and and it's a it's a human voice it's a it's a voice talking about people, real people, and their concerns and the impacts on them of these policies, and and the the, the power the power imbalance in the world, in in which in which these voices have just been marginalised for. For, for, for centuries, really, but, but but increasingly in this in this age we live in, which you know people have called the information age, um, it, it's an age in which you know the, the information is coming from the people with the power, and it's coming from the people with the wealth, and and it and it is placed at the service of them in their quest for endlessly expanding wealth and endlessly expanding power and this and this neoliberal system which is really just you know ramming 19th century unbridled lacy fair capitalism down the throats of the people of the 21st century um, it, it 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 is a, a system for Essentially, to create a closed loop in which the pe- the people can these wealthy people can use their wealth to gain more power, economic and political power, and then they can use uh, political and economic power to gain more wealth for themselves. And and this is this is the spiral, you know, the which is really a downward spiral for humanity. Uh, that we have been on um, and that has been systematized and accelerated and institutionalized for for the last 30 or 40 years. What about the fact that this voice is coming out of Colombia, understanding the importance that Colombia has played in the past in terms of United States hegemony in the region? Oh, it is! It is! It is incredible that it is coming out of Colombia. Colombia is the is the country whose whose previous government was allowing the U.S. military to use, I think, seven of its air bases. You know, on the on the pretext of of fighting the drug war and fighting terrorism, and you know, and of course, uh, and of course, fighting. Colombia's own civil war, um, and um, in in many ways, Colombia has been the most reliable right wing uh, ally of of the U.S. in Latin America for many years. While at the same time, 
essentially being a narco state under uh, under you former President Uribe and and the successive uh, rulers since then who have been his proteges. And this, you know, I mean, it is incredible that the, uh, the, that the governments most closely aligned to the U.S. are the ones, uh, the kleptocracies, the, the, the ones run by... Um, you know, drug cartels, and 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 I mean, this, this this is what the U.S. did in Honduras as well in 2009. You know, there was a there was a military coup against uh, against the president of Honduras, Manuel uh, Zelaya, and, um, and and Honduras was turned into a total, um, you know, narco kleptocracy for the next uh, what is it? something like that. No, longer than that. Well, and, and look at what and look at what was done in Haiti with the uh, assassination yes. of Jovenel Moise. It is the evidence is pointing to the fact that the some of the assassins came out of Colombia, and we know that the United yep. States has used Colombia to train its assassins, the individuals that it uses in the region. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, yeah, and some of these Colombian mercenaries have been involved in other. U.S. wars as far away as the Middle East, and I mean, and yeah, it's it's all just absolutely atrocious. It is all so well hidden from the American people. Not that they always want to see it, but um, you know, we're not blameless here. But but you know, the American people have have gone along with this um, and being willing to close our eyes and not see, you know, what U.S. policy is really doing for real people, our brothers and sisters in all these other countries. And so coming back around to the U.N. General Assembly, it is it is simply wonderful to hear these people speaking out, uh, people like Petro new voices, you know, who are not playing the game. They are not uh, dressing themselves up as, uh, you know, European-style, Western-style leaders. They are speaking um, their own people's language and and uh, truly representing their people in in in, in international fora like the, the, the UN. There was another amazing, amazing speech. It was a I would say a cry from the heart. It was the most uh, powerful speech um, about Ukraine in the you know six days of speeches, and it was by um, the foreign minister of uh, the Congo, not not the DRC, but the you know formerly French Congo mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in Africa. And I mean, he even broke into Russian at a certain point to directly address the people of Ukraine. And Russia, and you know, and I mean, and he was, you know, talking about the fact that they are, you know, they are sacrificing their children, their sweet children, your sweet children, he said, who, um, and uh, and the future of of, of the ne- their next generation in this in this madness, and you know, and just pleading, pleading with them to stop. And um, but also, I mean, just 
such a widespread call from the global south about the endemic, systematic injustice, you know, that, that they have been living like that has been inflicted on them in one form or, or another. Um, and, uh, and this is, you know, it, it's not, I mean, I think Americans maybe can relate to this by, you, you know, looking at the, the endemic and systematic injustice within the United States. Um, you know, the way that from slavery we were, went to Jim Crow to now, you know, the new Jim Crow that Michelle Alexander so clearly uh, identified as mass incarceration and mass, crimi- mass criminalization of entire communities of color in this country. Uh, so perhaps perhaps a good way that Americans can actually understand U.S. foreign policy is to simply see that that the same the same uh, systematic injustice has been institutionalized through through everything that the U.S. does in its foreign policy, through the, the military, the, the economic warfare and sanctions, and the, and the, the debt, uh, you know, the, the, the debt that is inflicted on on the developing world and the and the structural mm-hmm. adjustments that governments are forced to make where they end up, they end up having to tax their people to pay their debts and can't even and, and, and can't even prioritize or set aside money for, you know, education and health care and and the benefit of their own people because the banks and the and the IMF and the international institutions now own them. Um and so this entire system of injustice, people yes. across the globe, across the global south, are 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 really coming together, and it's almost it's almost as if they've lost their fear. In fact, to that point, I'm going to read this as we get out. Petro urged a peaceful settlement to the proxy war in Ukraine, while also condemning the Western wars on Iraq, Libya, and Syria. Quote, there is no total peace without social, economic, and environmental justice, he said. We are at war as well with the planet. Without peace with the planet, there will be no peace between nations. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmar. You are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. I hope you were informed and enlightened. I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out. 